0: Robert Murray McShane writes the poem, Jehovah Sekednu. That word Sekednu means righteous as found in Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen, 16. And so what McShane writes is this, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sekednu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even then, they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sekednu, seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree, Jehovah Sekednu, it nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see, Jehovah Sekednu's savior must be. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fervor my God set me free, Jehovah Sekednu, my death shall be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came to drink at the fountains life-giving and free. Jehovah Seked knew all things to me. That poem pictures and speaks much of God's grace. This morning we reach into God's word and we draw to a close our study in the book of Colossians. And it is there that we find both the display and the dispersing of God's grace. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. And I want to bring to you the message that I've titled, The Continuing Influence of Paul. I do ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> One final time, Colossians chapter 4, we begin in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justus, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf, in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Among when this letter And when this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And now verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. Brian Chappelle writes a story of a time of talking with Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges is the author of a series of books on the pursuit of holiness, the most familiar of those being titled that very thing, The Pursuit of Holiness. God has used that book to motivate a number of people to pursue the Lord and to seek to follow him. But Jerry Bridges has said that as he went around preaching on that very topic, the pursuit of holiness, there was always another sermon that he seemed to have to preach afterwards, after that series of messages. Oh. That message that he had to preach on the, after preaching the pursuit of holiness was the pursuit of grace. He had to speak into people's lives and explain how grace transforms us and compels us to pursue holiness, or allows us to pursue holiness. Telling the story, Chappelle indicates that it was some measure, at least early on, that it was almost like just a Nike Christianity, meaning just do it. Just hunker down and try harder. People were inspired, but they found themselves incapable, is what he said. And then Jerry Bridges said this, but you know it's the grace of God. And by that grace, you're enabled to do what he says. Jerry's book supposedly, That Pursuit of Holiness, which was about just doing it, sold roughly three million copies. His follow-up book, Transforming Grace, which is to show how grace enables one to just do it, sold only 300,000. The more we talk about the grace of God, rather than what we do to get God to respond to us, it seems the more people are uninterested. What Jerry Bridges said was that it's actually the grace of God that is the power of the ability to pursue holiness and to pursue our disciplines. And as we practice them, we're not about trying to pay off some debt that God has given us. Rather, Grace is simply a means by which God opens our hearts to receive the grace that helps us understand Him more. There's an inversion there, basically, that understanding his grace precedes performance, not that our performance buys grace, and that inversion shifts everything. The grace from our Lord does not just bring us to God, Grace from our Lord causes us to pursue God. Grace is the enabler in our life. It enables us to endure trials. It enables us to enjoy triumphs. Grace enables us to be made holy through salvation. And it enables us to then pursue holiness through sanctification. Grace abounds in the life of a believer. And it is the abounding influence of grace that makes any of us who call ourselves followers of Christ different from anyone who calls themselves followers of the culture. Side by side, believer and unbeliever, the difference between the two is not kindness, it's not compassion, it's not love. The difference between the two, the difference that resonates, is the influence of grace in their lives. That grace is just then shown through kindness. Kindness and compassion, gentleness, peace, contentment. We would go down the list, and in reality, we could say that grace is expressed in our lives by the output of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And so my point is this, grace enables Christ-likeness in the Christian life. In Paul's final sentence here in the book of Colossians, grace is not merely a noticeable theme It's grace that Paul endeavors to leave with the Colossians. The continuing influence of Paul is the offering of the Lord's grace to the church in Colossae, to the church in early Christian history, and even to the church today, to us today. Paul leaves behind a testimony and a teaching of grace. And so as we look at his words this morning, Before we actually look at grace, I want you to note first the substantiation. The substantiation. In closing, Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. From Paul's other letters, it was common for him to have some sort of scribe or some sort of secretary who would write down the letter as Paul dictated it. He ends his first letter to the Corinthians in the same way. I, Paul, write the greeting with my own hand. The letter to the Romans. It offers a little bit more insight when we learn the identity of the secretary, at least at this point, at chapter 16, verse 22. When there's kind of a deviation from Paul's words, and and it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Showing us that Paul dictated to Tertius, and Tertius wrote it down for him. Was Tertius the same secretary that Paul used in all his letters? I don't know. But the point is, at this point, we know this is a usual practice for Paul. It's thought that Paul likely suffered from some sort of medical condition, particularly some sort of medical condition of not being able to see or something that hindered his eyesight. And we get this based on the closing of Galatians. When he writes to them, see with what large letters... I am writing to you with my own hand, indicating that maybe he couldn't see, and so he's having to write big in order to see the large print or larger print. This certainly would explain the necessity then to dictate his letters to others and then have someone else record them. The substantiation in in the verse here serves three purposes. I suspect some of those purposes probably were not even on Paul's mind when he was writing the letter, but... They now are incredibly crucial. First, it gives authority. The name of Paul assigned to a letter, it gives it weight and value that it would not otherwise have. You and I could write a letter to the Church of Colossae, and we could send our greetings, we could give instructions, and we could impart that doctrine and truth just as Paul does. And maybe to some degree, we could even write a letter that was considered more practical or relevant than what Paul has written but it would not have the same level of authority as that of Paul. Paul is known where we're unknown. Paul's reputation exceeds ours. And so when Paul writes, when Paul speaks, it is a cue to pay particular attention and lend that attention to someone, Paul, who is deserving of it. We do that today when we see Paul's name. We give it our attention because we know who he is. It comes with authority. That authority then leads to another aspect, authenticity. By signing the letter with his own hand, Paul is giving it credibility. He states this explicitly to the Thessalonians, closing out a second letter to them. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And so with his signature, Paul is verifying that it is genuine. Not that anyone writes letters these days, but when they did, a signature offered substantiation, that the letter was trustworthy and authentic and actually from the writer. Paul's letter to the Colossians then is authoritative because it's authentic. And then that leads us to something more. Those two traits, authority and authenticity, then makes the letter acceptable. It is to be well-received and well-read. The church is to accept the letter because it is authentic and it is authoritative. Not only was a letter acceptable to the Colossian church, but it became acceptable to the Christian church of today even, so that it is now read in churches all over the world, <coughs> two millennia later even. Remember, there was a time when Christians did not have the Bible in a book bound like we do today. And those who seek to undermine the Bible's credibility say that the only reason we have the Bible is because a group of men got together and by their authority decided what should be included and which books to exclude. The result of that myth is now that we have a preponderance of people who have this false belief that it was men who excluded or included certain books of the Bible. And specifically, you hear people say, well, they excluded the books that didn't fit their ideology or theology. Now what we have are these television programs or YouTube channels. You can believe anything. Develop a belief your own and then go to YouTube and find a channel to confirm it. <laughs> and so we have these programs that are dedicated to the forbidden books of the Bible, the Gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Jesus, his wife, the letter of Mary. But what those who propagate that belief fail to acknowledge or understand is that those councils of the early church, they didn't determine the books of the Bible. All they did was to try to bring them together so that they were in a form that was both manageable and accessible. And in doing that, all they did was affirm what the early church had already put forth, what they already knew to be scripture. By the middle of the second century, there were already lists circulating of what books were accepted as scripture. And it was based on these points I just gave you, authority, authenticity, and acceptability. And then I'll add one more to that, apostleship, at least for the New Testament. The letter had to be associated with an apostle. What those who try to propagate that false narrative of things like the Gospel of Thomas and I mention that one because of any book, any false book, that's the one that I get hit with the most. I get asked about that more than any other. When people fail to recognize, is or what they do fail to recognize, is that in an effort to gain credibility, there was a time when people, even centuries later, would write letters and then assign an apostle's name to it, calling it the Gospel of Thomas, with the idea that it would seem plausible and people would receive it. But by signing the letter with his own hand, the Apostle Paul is making this document trustworthy. The integrity of this letter is unquestionable. And as such, then we have this epistle to the Colossians, and it commands our attention. It calls upon us to look upon it and hear it and live it out, taking heed to the teachings that are contained within For 18 months now, we have plowed through the book of Colossians and we've plumbed its depths, but not because of my authority, not because of my desire to preach it, but instead it entreats us to spend time with it because it comes from the Apostle Paul, who has been both qualified and used by God. That substantiation, the the, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It calls on us to not neglect the letter, the words laid within this letter, but it compels us then to be invested into a deeper study of it. Paul's influence continues today because we have it on good authority that these words were his, genuinely inspired by the Lord. And that's the substantiation. I want you to note, second, the petition. The petition. After giving a substantiation to authenticate the letter before closing out, Paul issues one more command. Remember my chains. Here, while Paul is in the middle of a trial, he petitions the Colossian believers to remember his chains, remember that he's in prison, and remember what he is enduring. Paul's situation in jail is hardly ideal It's not as awful as it could be either, though. And yet I suspect, I know how I would respond, and most of us would probably find ourselves distressed if we were in similar circumstances. When pressed even with the slightest of trials, for most people, they look for their quickest exit. Apostle Paul, though, is a unique individual. Because while most people seek to depart from discomfort, Paul seems satisfied in suffering. In fact, he he says as much at the beginning of his letter. If you have your Bibles open to Colossians 4, go back a few pages and look at chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and I know it begins in the middle of a sentence, but if we look beginning at verse 23, we start to get this picture. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to this stewardship from God. Paul rejoices in suffering, finding exceeding joy in the middle of very difficult circumstances. Paul and any believer may be content in trial and tribulation, in persecution and in oppression, because it's not about our misery. It's about God's majesty. Acts chapter 5, the apostles are going about and they're doing this great work for the Lord. And then they have opposition. And in verses 17 and 18, we're told, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And if you continue on in Acts 5, you'll read the verses and, and find this account of the apostles, despite giving a defense, being charged until ultimately Gamaliel intervenes on their behalf. And what happens is they're eventually released. And after they're released, in verse 41, it says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. The apostles rejoiced at being counted worthy to endure trials on his behalf. And now in Colossians, the Apostle Paul has the same attitude. Where does a view like that come from? How could someone in the throes of temptation and tribulation find joy about being considered worthy enough to suffer for Christ? Because they recognize that Christ is worthy to suffer for. The same truth came up Wednesday night when Pastor James Coates shared Jesus is worthy of our suffering. Christ, an all-glorious God, who suffered on our behalf of all sinful men like me, he is worthy to suffer for. We forget sometimes that suffering is ordained by God. And when we do remember that it's permitted by him, it usually causes us to question his goodness and his holiness and and throw in whatever attribute you want. But in reality, suffering displays God's character because it is a means to accomplish his will, which is to bring the unbeliever to salvation through faith and repentance and to bring the believer to sanctification through faith and repentance. And both of those endeavors are in line with God's character because they are good, they are holy, they are perfect, they're gracious, they're merciful. And so suffering is ordained for the glory of God and the good of God's people. We saw God's hand in trials in the scripture reading this morning, at that interaction of Satan and and God, in which God allows, in this case, in Job chapter 2 that we read, God allows Job's health to be attacked, in the previous chapter, in Job chapter 1, we see where, where God permits Satan to move forward with that. That's God allowing or ordaining suffering. We have another example in Genesis chapter 39 with Joseph, when he, he was allowed to be sold into slavery. And then eventually he's allowed to be, or forced, to be put in jail. God permitted all of that. But at the end of the book, we see that it was all for God's glory, we have to remember, though, that when God ordains suffering, we can't forget truths, like what we read this morning in Psalm 25:23, five through6. "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever." We must remember that in those trials, God is still God. God is still good. God is still merciful, and so on. For both Job and Joseph, God protected them and brought their circumstances together for good. And so Paul can suffer well here because he's well cared for by God. He tells the Colossians, remember my chains, remember my suffering." That's not a wholly selfish request. It's actually very practical and very theological. At its most basic, fundamental level, it's a petition to remember his chains and a petition then to pray for Paul. We saw that a few verses earlier in chapter 4, in which Paul requests prayer for the opportunity to be able to share the gospel and speak how he ought to speak. For us today to remember Paul's chains Really, is hardly a reason to pray. Paul has long ago been released from his imprisonment here, and even since then been put to death. There's no need for us to pray for Paul. You should recognize no longer is Paul satisfied in suffering. He's content in Christ. That doesn't mean that there's no relevance for us today, though. And very quickly, this verse prompts three things. First, it's a willingness to pray. It stimulates a willingness to pray, but not for Paul, of course, as I just said, but for any who find themselves suffering, specifically in Paul's situation or a similar situation. There are still those today who are being persecuted, imprisoned, and put to death for their faith. And remembering what Paul endured is an excellent reminder for us to remember to pray for those who suffer today in the same way. Second, it stimulates a willingness to remember. We remember not just Paul, but those throughout the centuries, like Athanasius and Irenaeus and Luther and Tyndale and John Rogers and Jonathan Edwards and even Spurgeon, who endured so much for the cause of Christ. We can remember them and rejoice that they too were counted worthy to suffer for him. Remembering their suffering encourages the faint-hearted. Those who may feel weak, Remember those who have gone before. And through that, we can be reminded that Christ suffered for us. And sometimes we may be called to suffer for him. That leads us to another aspect, that last one there. It's not just a willingness to pray or a willingness to remember. It's a willingness to then endure. Standing on the shoulders of those giants that I just talked about of sufferings past, When called to suffer ourselves, we remember them, and then we're encouraged to do the same. Like the apostles in Acts, we can rejoice in trials, taking comfort in the knowledge that we are worthy to suffer for him. Like James then, we rejoice in trials because we can also remember that it produces godly character. It's God's means of perfecting us. Consider, though, another aspect of trials and suffering. There is that phrase that God can't give you more than you can handle, and we'll take that verse from 2 Corinthians 10, 13. To be truthful, I've wrestled whether that's really a biblical interpretation and really how helpful is that phrase. But there are some truths that we should remember that are very similar. Take a moment and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. And Paul tells the Corinthians, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Clearly, Paul thinks that they had more than they could handle. That... What they were facing there was way beyond their capabilities. Then look at the next verses. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. So in fact, they couldn't handle it but the Lord could. And so by remembering Paul's chains, we remember that for Paul in suffering, the Lord's grace was sufficient. I can look over the room this morning and I know there are a lot of trials and sufferings going on. Every trial is different. So that your trial is different than theirs and, and yours is different than hers. everyone's unique and we might even say in some cases well my suffering is not as difficult as the person next to me that may be true but the point is we still have trials and it can be difficult for the person experiencing it but here's what we need to know that we remember Paul's chains and remember the Lord's grace is sufficient Paul expresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's there that he speaks of his thorn in the flesh and his desire to rid himself of it. And in fact, he tells the Colossians, or the Corinthians, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Then I am strong. So what we see here is, is in looking at Paul then, seeing what he's facing, what we should learn from that is that the circumstances we're facing, the Lord has allowed it. And he has allowed it knowing who we are. With the knowledge of each and every single one of us. He knows you more than anyone else does. And so then he must know that it is within your realm to navigate that trial with a reliance upon him. And so, if this trial seems more severe than the last, maybe, maybe it's more difficult than the last one you faced, and now you're struggling, it's probably because you've grown to the point that the Lord knows you can now handle this next one, that you're able to endure it with his help. That's Christian growth. And in trial, that should encourage you because, again, if he knows more about you and what you can handle than anybody else, then ordaining your suffering, he's saying you can face this if you rely upon me. And I know you can. Chrysostom writes, hear Paul's chains and you will understand that to be in affliction is no proof of being forsaken. And so indeed, we can face what is given because his grace is sufficient. That leads us to this final point, this last part of Paul's writing. He closes with these final words, grace be with you. Paul ends his letter to the Colossians the same way he began it, by dispensing grace to them. And so I want you to know, finally, the aspiration, the aspiration... Paul closes out at least nine of his letters by offering grace. Truthfully, I I lament the loss of grace in our culture, in our churches, in our relationships. We're quick to expect grace from others, but very slow to dispense grace to others. We're quick to receive grace from God, but very slow to pass that grace on to others. But that grace of God, his grace, unmerited undeserved favor in our lives it is given to us undeservedly and unreservedly and yet it seems difficult for people to extend it to others unreservedly and undeservedly that is to say that god gives us his grace unconditionally and yet when people give grace to others it's usually conditionally it's almost i'll give you grace when you've met my standards my criteria When you've pleased me. But the greatest gift that we can receive and have received is the greatest gift that we can also give. To quote William Hendrickson, grace is the most basic and yet greatest gift of all. Paul's aspiration is not to hoard God's grace. (laughs) He's not keeping it for himself, but instead he's offering it freely to others that they may receive and experience the same life-transforming grace that he has received and experienced. The same grace that was sufficient for Paul is sufficient for others. But it's not because Paul is giving his grace, because his grace won't transform their lives. He's offering them God's grace. God's grace be with you is how that ends. And what he's doing is offering to them simply out of the overflow of what he's already received. He has been given this abundant supply of grace and that's enough that he can then share it with others. So where did Paul receive this grace? At the cross. At the death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ. And at that death, burial, and resurrection, Paul and all believers received the fullest expression of grace. By receiving the fullest pardon of their sins. And when we, like Paul, then have an accurate view of who we are, marred by the, the stains of sin and unable to do anything about it. When we have an accurate view of ourselves, then we have an accurate view of just how profound God's grace is. And the response is to extend it to others. And so people are not giving their own grace. They're propagating God's grace further. And so if God gives grace unconditionally, who are we to put conditions on it? That's like saying, I I received this gift for free, but now I'm going to sell it to you. The greatest aspiration of a believer is to manifest God's grace to others. And that's what we see with the Apostle Paul. His continuing influence is to influence others with God's grace. Because grace is lacking in relationships, I, I think the character of most relationships is strife and selfishness and ultimately sinfulness. But the sufficient grace of God overcomes a hurt. It rights a wrong and it restores those relationships. But the thing about God's grace is that it's not only so that people will receive us and have a fuller relationship with us, We offer grace that they may receive Christ and have a fuller relationship with God through Christ. And so the aspiration to extend grace from us is that they may experience God. This is a noble ambition, and it should be the aspiration for all of us. To desire the good of others by desiring the grace of God. Because the grace of God leads one another to the greatness of God. Paul's continuing influence is seen in this substantiation because of its authority and its authenticity, this letter to the Colossians. It survives today as part of our canon of scripture. His continuing influence is seen in the petition, that petition to remember Paul's chains. Paul's influence continues today, not not just so that we remember Paul, but so that we are encouraged by that and remember the sufficiency of God's grace. And Paul's influence is seen in the aspiration. The example we get from Paul is to pass on the Lord's grace from one generation to the next. And with that, we come to the end of Colossians. We began in chapter one, verses one and two. And what we see there is God's grace. And now we end in chapter 4, verse 18, and what we see is God's grace. Through the course of this letter, we've, we've listened to God, through the hand of Paul, direct our attention to many subjects. But at the core of the letter is God's grace. The Lord's grace permeates throughout the entire epistle in each section. At the introduction of chapter one, from one 1-1 one to one fourteen, God's grace is expressed in the desire for sanctification. And then from one fifteen through two five, God's grace is expressed in the sufficiency and salvation of Christ. And then chapter the remainder of chapter two expresses the sufficiency of God's grace in his sufficient security of the church. As he guides the church in Colossae to stand firm against false teaching, he secures it, he protects it. And finally, in chapters 3 and 4, the sufficiency of God's grace is seen through the structure of the Christian life in Christ. Spurgeon told of an evening when he was riding home after a heavy day's work. He says he felt weary and depressed, and then suddenly, like a, a lightning flash, he thought of 2 Corinthians twelve nine, which I just read to you, my grace is sufficient for thee. He said he burst out laughing and said, I, I should think it is, Lord. He said that it seemed to make his unbelief so absurd. And he compares it this way. It is as though some little fish, being very thirsty, very troubled about drinking the river dry, and the river said, drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. For a man who's way up on a mountain, saying to himself, I fear I shall exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the earth might say, breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs ever. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. And then he says, little faith will bring our souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to us. The Lord's grace is there, free for the taking, for ourselves and to give to others. It only need to be received, it only need to be offered. It only becomes a matter of how we let grace enter our lives, and what control will we permit it to have in our lives? Closing with the words of Annie Flint, as she speaks of God's grace in one of her many poems. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you are God of grace. You are the author of grace, the distributor of grace, and we find no grace apart from you, but your grace is sufficient for us, Lord. Father, cause us to live in that grace more and more. May that grace permeate our lives, impacting how we endure trials, impacting how we relate to one another, and impacting ultimately and and first and foremost our relationship with you, Lord. May we be able to live day by day and see, experience, and proclaim your grace is sufficient. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.